So recently I was traveling through central Virginia and I knew that there was one place I needed to stop. 1313 Pierce Street in the city of Lynchburg, which is about two hours west of Richmond. When we pull up to the curb, we see that the house is in the middle of an active residential street. Neighbors are mowing their lawns or hanging out, and so are their pets. Little cats. Little cats. Number 1313 is a brown house with green shingles. It's really pretty. But I'm actually here to see what's tucked behind the house. The garden. This garden was the muse and refuge of Harlem Renaissance poet Anne Spencer. It was the place that she hosted the great minds of her day, Langston Hughes, W.E.B. Du Bois, and it was also the place where she wrote much of her poetry. So what I'm about to do feels a little surreal. I go right up to this house and let myself into the backyard. Ooh, wow, look at this. I'm Amanda McGowan, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. I love visiting the homes of artists and writers because it kind of feels like the chance to walk around inside of their brains. And today, we're taking you to the backyard of 1313 Pierce Street in Lynchburg, Virginia, because if there's anywhere to get the feeling of walking around inside Ann Spencer's incredible mind, it's here. That's after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. Wow, it's big. When I enter Ann Spencer's garden, one of the first things I see is a birdhouse on a tall, skinny post, far taller than me. Nearby is a speaker with a button on it, so obviously, I pressed it. This is the garden of Harlem Renaissance poet Ann Spencer. It served as a refuge from the injustices of the segregated times in which she lived. It was also a source of inspiration for her poetry. Looking around, you can see why this space would be an inspiration. Everything is a rich, lush green, and when I visit in summertime, there are pops of pale pink, too. Some lovely roses in bloom. Through the years, the garden was a riot of color and seasonal flowers. Visitors came from far and wide to see it. All the roses and many of the plants still growing in the garden today are Anne's own beloved flowers, trees, and shrubs. 
The garden feels like it's almost divided up into rooms. Spaces are carefully marked off by tall plants and these painted teal green lattice structures. The neighbors are right over the other side of the fence and I can hear cars faintly driving by, but this space feels enclosed, cozy. It's like a little oasis, the perfect place for a writer to work. She uses the garden in almost everything she writes. Nearly all of her poetry has either a theme or an image or a symbol or something from the garden. This is Nina Salmon. She's an English professor at the University of Lynchburg who has been teaching Spencer's poetry and bringing her students to this garden for years. When I ask Nina about how the garden worked its way into Spencer's work, she points me first to a poem called Creed. In Creed, Spencer uses images from nature to paint a picture of the kind of world that she wants to live in, a place where living things care for each other and provide for one another and can be free. And it starts, it says, if my garden oak spares one bare ledge for a bowed mistletoe to grow and wedge. Here, Spencer is talking about her garden oak bearing a ledge or offering up one of its limbs for mistletoe to grow on. Mistletoe actually lives off the branches of other trees. So Anne's tree is providing a refuge for something with no other place to go. Then Spencer writes, And all the wild birds this year should know, I cherish their freedom to come and go. As Nina reads these lines to me, I think back to that birdhouse that I passed with my first steps into the garden. The wild birds, I cherish the freedom to come and go. There are four purple martin houses in the garden, and they're on these enormous poles, and they're way up high. And that was insect control. It was also, you know, freedom for the birds. After the wild birds, Spencer turns her attention to feeding stray dogs and then sheltering a tired pilgrim who shows up on her doorstep. Then at the end of the poem, she declares that when she dies and meets God in heaven, quote, he dare not be silent or send me away. It's almost like a challenge. Here's Nina's interpretation. If we don't have this community or this relationship with one another that affords for helping a stray dog or kindness to animals, kindness to one another, if we don't get this together and figure it out, then God and I are going to tangle. <laughs> Ann Spencer lived at 1313 Pierce and tended to this garden for around 70 years. But she was born many miles away, in a rural area of Virginia near the North Carolina border, in 1882. Spencer didn't formally attend school until she was 11 years old. And going to school took her far away from home, to the city of Lynchburg, where there was a secondary school that admitted Black students. Once she began schooling, it was obvious how bright and creative she was. Just six years later, at her graduation, she delivered the valedictory address. And it was at school where she met Edward Spencer, who later became Lynchburg's first African-American parcel postman. And there is a story that floats around about Edward delivering a parcel to the front door in a prominent neighborhood in Lynchburg and being told by the homeowner uh, to go around to the servant's entrance in the back. And Edward said, well, nope, here's your package. And it's coming to the front door. If you want it, it'll come to the front door. Anne and Edward married, and he designed and built the house for her at 1313 Pierce Street. Edward's own creativity is visible everywhere. As I listen to the narrative from the speakers, I realize that I'm actually looking right at an example of it, as I stare at the teal lattice structures that divide up the garden. Edward was a parcel postman. 
and gathered many discarded items from its roots and reused them to the build the garden structures. Such features as the heavy turned posts of the cottage porch and the green stone terrace and grill and the blue lattice fence at the garden entrance all add interest and charm to the garden. The Anne was always a prolific writer, jotting ideas for poems on grocery receipts, paper bags, even the walls of the house. And it was the house itself, in a way, that launched her publishing career. In the 19-teens, she and Edward became involved with forming a local chapter of the NAACP in Lynchburg. Afterward, many Black intellectuals, artists, and dignitaries would travel through town. But because of discriminatory Jim Crow laws, they were barred from staying in local hotels. So instead, the Spencers would host them at their home. One of these visiting men was named James Weldon Johnson. You may know him as the writer of the lyrics to Lift Every Voice and Sing. While he was there, he did come across one of her poems that was just sort of probably lying about somewhere on a table or in the living room. And he picked it up and they struck up the conversation. He encouraged her to publish her poetry. Anne's poetry was published for the first time in the NAACP magazine, The Crisis, in 1920. My next stop on the tour of Anne's garden is to her writing studio. It's a little red cottage trimmed with the same teal blue of the garden lattices. There is an iron sign on top with an image of a woman gardening, with a child and a dog, or maybe a cat, at her feet. This garden cottage was named Eden Crawl by the Spencers, Ed from Edward's name, and Anne from Anne's name. And crawl is an African word meaning dwelling, corral, or place. Eden Crawl. Edward built it in the 1920s for Anne as a place where she could come and do her writing in peace and solitude. I put my hands up to the window and take a look. You can see inside there's a desk with a little light on, a vase full of branches, there's a notebook open, lots of old photos on the walls. I can picture Anne writing in here late at night. The windows cracked open a bit, letting in the sounds of crickets or birds. This was the place where she worked. But it's also a place where she continued to host Black artists, visionaries, and writers. It kept Spencer connected to the Harlem Renaissance, the artistic movement happening hundreds of miles away. She's considered part of that movement today, even though she never lived in New York City. She published in some important uh, volumes of the day and was celebrated along with people like Langston Hughes and W.B. Du Bois and James Weldon Johnson and Sterling A. Brown um, and Zora Neale Hurston, names that, that we know, you know, the big Harlem Renaissance names. Um, and you can find her in those volumes as well. No doubt visits from other writers provided inspiration for Spencer. Cross-pollination, if you will. But throughout her life, her biggest source of inspiration continued to be, of course, the garden. One of the last poems she wrote before she died was called 1975. And in it, she writes about turning over a rock and finding a worm there. Neil, she writes, and the curly worm, sentient now, will light the word that tells the poet what a poem is. You know, it's a clear connection that she's playing in the dirt, she's digging in the dirt, and there's a worm, and that worm becomes the muse and identifies what the poem is for her. She admired her creatures in the garden. She admired the garden. Uh, she tended the garden, cared for the garden. And it was her muse. The garden is, is what 
um, fed her creativity. Anne Spencer died in 1975 at the age of 93. After that, the garden became overgrown and neglected. But in the 1980s, Anne's son Chauncey, who lived across the street, asked a local garden club to help restore it. Today, the garden appears much as it did in the 1930s. The roses are even from Anne's original plants. And many other flowers you can see were grown from her bulbs, too. More recently, Spencer's granddaughter, Sean Spencer Hester, has also restored the house itself. As my tour wraps up, I stop at the small pond near the back of the garden. There's a bust of an African prince perched on the side of the pond. This was a gift from W.E.B. Du Bois. It's late afternoon now, and the bugs are coming out. Thanks for the bug spray. Oh, here's another birdhouse. There's one, there's one last recording. This one, a reading of Spencer's poem, Lines to a Nestershum. Before I head out, I listen to Spencer's words with the sound of the birds in the background, in the place that inspired them. Flame flower, day torch, Mona Loa. I saw a daring bee today, pause and soar into your flaming heart. Then did I hear a crisp, crinkled laughter as the furies after tore him apart. A bird, next, small and humming, looked into your started depths and fled. Surely some dread sight and death. The gardens at the Ann Spencer House are free and open to the public seven days a week from dawn till dusk. You can find brochures at the entrance for a self-guided tour. Find out more information online about touring the gardens and the house at annspencermuseum.com. Special thanks to Nina Salmon for sharing Ann Spencer's poetry with me. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. Our production team includes... Doug Baldinger. Chris Naka. Camille Stanley. Willis Ryder Arnold. Sarah Wyman. Manolo Morales. Baudelaire Seuss. Gianna Palmer. Tracy Samuelson. John Delore. Tanaka Maria Muvavaridwa. Ellie Katz. Our technical director is... Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by... Luce Fleming. If you would like to learn more, you can head over to atlasobscura.com. There is a link in our episode description. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. And I'm Amanda McGowan, wishing you all the wonder and poetry in the world. I'll see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Women Who Travel is a transported podcast for anyone curious about the world. We talk to adventurers and athletes. I've raced the God's Own Adventure Race, which is on the South Island and goes through the mountains down in the Southern Alps on New Zealand. That was eight days spent out in the wilderness. And chefs. Iranian food is home, it's family, it's love. And we share dispatches from our listeners. Ireland is full of these, I will call them ghosts of the past. From stampeding elephants 
to training sled dogs. We hear it all. The dogs will curl right up with you, and it can be kind of cozy waiting things out. New episodes of Women Who Travel publish every Thursday. Join us wherever you listen. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts.